Over the years, Disney has put out animated movies that have sparked our imagination and stood the test of time. Every now and then though, the critics find one and take the House of Mouse down a notch or two. Were they justified this time? Find out as we try to find out if Atlantis The Lost Empire is not that bad. Welcome, welcome one and all to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. And I am ready today for a very animated discussion because we are talking about Disney's Atlantis The Lost Empire. And here to join is our favorite Californian of all time. Greg is back on the show. Greg, how you doing, man? Doing very well. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, I had to continue my sci-fi trend on your show, apparently. Right? Well, it's it's funny because certain guests tend to 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 suggest certain movies. I know, I know. Sci-fi movies and you, it's, I, I can I can always tell I'm I don't going to have mean a good time. To do, okay, the third time with Pluto Nash, I meant to do it, but I don't mean <laughs> to do it from then on. I, I, I know. You know what? It's an MO. It's a modus operandi, and I'm all here for it. Ooh, Latin. That would have come well with uh, Milo Thatch's resume. Excellent. Right? Right? A, a linguist. I, I am here. And so, cartographer. I was about Thank to say, you. we're going to map our way through this one here, but what is it about Atlantis, the lost empire that made you want to do this film? Um, Atlantis lost empire uh, is one of the two films for Disney that a certain group of people who fall within a Venn diagram of, I believe like kind of older millennials like myself um, and also like Disney fans feel are critically underrated. Um, it's Atlantis and it's treasure planet. Those are the two that we feel are just ignored and like, do not get the credit that they deserve. And it's because this is kind of in the era where Disney was trying, like kind of like their teen angst, almost kind of movies where they're like, we're not going to do the happy preppy, you know, everyone sings a song and gets a happy ending in the end. We're going to do something a little bit different, something a little bit kind of like more, uh, moody and edgy and that's what we got with these two films and they are great films but they did not do well in the box office because people are like what is up disney are you okay do you need someone to check in on you right now maybe it's just you know me but i had no problem with the tonality of the film because i remember growing up and watching the black hole and if disney was going to scar anyone black hole was going to scar some people back in the 80s well that's kind of the thing though it's like Disney to kind of do as a um, a metaphor almost has, has like different dating profiles where they have like the animated, you know, movies that they put forward. They're like, oh, these are fun for the whole family. Like anyone can come check these out. There'll be songs. It'll be based upon a book that, you know, or a fairy tale or something. And it'll be fun. And then they also have their like, this is uh, the weird uh, guy who has extrinsic hobbies kind of stuff like Black Hole, like um, is it Escape to Witch Mountain, uh, a Disney film, you know, things like that, where it's like a little bit edgy, a little bit kind of like we're taking a chance with this film. So it's almost like they forgot what profile they were sending this message from for Atlantis and people were confused. Okay, um, before before I get into my thoughts on this film, uh, we are going to get into this. But before we do, it is time to take Atlantis, The Lost Empire and trailerize it. Deep in the unexplored regions of the ocean lies a city long lost to memory. Until 1914, 
when one man will lead a crew complete with giant submarines filled with smaller submarines, giant boring machines, and giant-sized cliches on a quest to find the lost city of Atlantis. Enter Milo Thatch, a complete nerd locked away in a museum basement until someone crazy decides to listen to him. He'll decipher ancient texts, athletically comb through titles and do his best to save the day, all while never losing his glasses, even underwater. He'll Gary Stew his way through this greed bad learning good story with no CGI and nobody breaking out in his song. Are we sure this is 2001 Disney? Hmm. Atlantis, the Lost Empire, rated PG for Pixarless Gold. It is really fascinating when you take a look at this film and remember that it's 2001 because when I was watching this film, I'm not going to lie, I was getting some you know wonderful world of Disney flashbacks like that era when they were putting Disney movies on like, you know, a part of my Canadian here, but CBC at like Sunday, six o'clock kind of thing. It didn't feel like the movies that were coming out at that time from Pixar and Disney as well. I, I... I kind of disagree with that. I can see your point there, but at the same time, movies that Disney's putting out at this time that are major box office hits are things like Tarzan. So like it kind of is in the whole, like we're going to go on a deep like adventure kind of movie and like, you know, have an expedition crew and stuff like that. I get the whole like, Oh, it starts off in a museum and ends in like a rich guy's like um, kind of like parlor or stuff like that. Uh, it's based upon Journey to the Center of the Earth, essentially, in 40,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So I can understand that. But I think I, I feel like that this is still within the um, the kind of motif they were going for at this time. But I, it does also fit with that wonderful Walt Disney um, aesthetic as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But let's get into who's in this film. It stars Michael J. Fox, Jim Varney, Corey Burton, Claudia Christian, James Garner, John Mahoney, Phil Morris, the great Leonard Nimoy and Cree Summer. Now, it should be noted that Jim Varney did pass away before finishing the film. So one of his lines at near the end, Stephen Barr had to voice that one and did his best uh, Jim Varney imitation in that in that role. It almost starred Lloyd Bridges, who was originally cast as Whitmore, but he unfortunately passed away shortly after production began. So they recast him with John Mahoney and Tim Curry was considered for the role of the King of Atlantis, which was played by Leonard Nimoy. As Moliere, you have to listen to this list here, okay? As Moliere, under consideration were Chris Rock, Michael Nicolosi, John Leguizamo, Bernard Farsi, D.L. Hewley, and Ben Miller. I just can't picture Chris Rock as Moliere. Was it because his last name is Rock and Moliere likes to dig? That's stupid. Like, <laughs> I can a thousand percent hear John Leguizamo pulling off that voice, though, especially when you consider the work he does as the sloth in Ice Age. It's kind of a similar ballpark for what they're doing there. You know, like I think the sloth is a bit more Sid. The sloth is a bit more like kind of like spitty. Mm-hmm. But like I could I could feel John Leguizamo could have done this, but. 
going back a step, Tim Curry as the king of Atlantis? No. No. Absolutely not. I do not agree with that. I know he doesn't always do the dark and brooding voices, but I just don't hear it at all for him. As much as I wasn't ecstatic that it's Leonard Nimoy doing that voice, Tim Curry, no. Yeah, no. I mean, Tim, I'm sure there is a spot for Tim Curry in this film, but definitely not as the king of Atlantis. Now, for the role of Commander Rourke, Listen to this list of people who were considered for this. Tommy Lee Jones, Jack Davenport, Kurt Russell, Heath Ledger, Josh Brolin, Harry Shearer, and Joaquin Phoenix. Like, that is a that is a who's who of authority figures in, like, 2001. Um, but, uh, you know, the role did eventually go to James Garner. But there's a lot of names on that list that I could easily see in the role of Commander Rourke. Especially Tommy Lee Jones. I could see that. There's two names on the list I do not agree with whatsoever. And one is Heath Ledger. I feel like he was too young at this point. You know, I mean, 2001, that's like around the same time, if I remember correctly, as like a Knight's Tale. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't see him as Rourke unless they completely redesigned Rourke's character. And then the other one was um, uh, 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 Kurt Russell. Because if you do Kurt Russell there, then suddenly this is just too much like Stargate where you have a nebbish book nerd who learns how to read a mythological language to find a secret entrance to a world that has lost a time that has advanced technology that then they have a bomb essentially, or some kind of energy source go uh, off and they have to escape it before things get bad. Like that's literally Stargate or Atlantis. So Mm -hmm. if you have Kurt Russell there, like, okay, so you're just down doing repeats of your career. Right. I mean, Josh Brolin, I could easily see as well. Uh, He would have been very good in the role, but James Garner was really, really good. Now, I I think they went correct with James Garner. Yeah, I agree. Oh, absolutely. Now, under consideration for the role of Milo, Jason Schwartzman, Tobey Maguire, Meyer, Jim Carrey, Harry Enfield, Nicolas Cage... Brad Pitt, <laughs> Jason Lee, Jamie Kennedy, Gorn Visnish, and Kevin Spacey. Now, obviously, when you take a look at the list for the Commander Rourke role, you can kind of see that they had a good idea of what they wanted with that. But the consideration list from Milo seems like an absolute scattershot of let's just throw a bunch of names on the wall, and the last one that stays on the wall gets to be Milo. Yeah, I, I'm looking at this list as well. And because I was going to bring this up if you didn't. And there's only two names on here I can maybe agree with. And that's Jason Schwartzman and Jamie Kennedy. Just for like, and that's assuming that we don't cons- like significantly like redraft what Milo looks like or is. Mm-hmm. You know, because Milo has to be the kind of bookish guy who is intimidated by others. But then when the chips are down, knows how to stand up for what's right. And I don't feel like. Any of these other ones like Brad Pitt or like Nicolas Cage can pull that off as well in an animated character without that character can significantly changing their look or their arc. So like if we're assuming it's Milo as drawn and as written, those are the only ones I can think of that would do this besides, of course, Michael J. Fox, who I think honestly was perfect for the role. Oh, yeah. The only name that came to mind as a, as a potential alternative casting for this was probably Matthew Broderick. I could see him kind of pulling off that's the, the tonality that Michael J. Fox brought in there as well. Agreed, yeah. Especially when you um, look at stuff that he did for, I believe he was uh, the adult Simba in Lion King. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of the 
the reluctance that he had there, I could see maybe also kind of applying to here. So I could see Matthew Broderick. Yeah, that that might have been an OK cast, but I still think Michael J. Fox kind of, especially with kind of the work that he does a little bit in some of his Back to the Future roles. Um, I forget which ones they are exactly because they kind of merged in my, in my head. But like when he is hesitant or nervous to to act and then he realizes, no, I have to do this. Otherwise, everything falls apart. You know, mm-hmm. um, like when he's trying to work up the courage to like talk to his dad and not like be weird about like, how do I talk to my dad in this diner or whatever, you know? So I think, I think that Michael J. Fox was in my mind key, but then again, I love this movie. So maybe I'm too close to it, you know, but yeah. it, was, it was directed by Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise and Joss Whedon actually has a writing credit on this film. Cause you're sitting there, you watch the credits go, Oh, Joss Whedon. Oh, what, what Joss Whedon? Okay. I never noticed that. That's amazing. It's kind of like realizing that James Gunn was the guy behind like the Scooby-Doo movies. Right? Like all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay. I guess I really like James Gunn now. Right. Now, the movie did actually win an award for best sound editing for an animated feature film at the 2002 Golden Reel Awards. The film had a budget of $120 million domestically. It grossed $84 million and worldwide $186 million. Now, there is a massive asterisk on the box office for the opening weekend. When it opened on the June 8th, 2001 weekend, it only opened in two theaters. That's it. And still brought in $329,011 out of two theaters. But if you're taking a look at wide release... The first week of wide release was the next week, the June 15th, 2001 weekend. It landed at number two with $20 million. Number one that week in its debut was Lara Croft Tomb Raider at $47.7 million. It just feels kind of funny that you have in wide release debut. Yes, Atlantis was out in two theaters the weekend before, but in wide release, you have two very different but still some somewhat you know the same adventure type feel releasing at the same time yeah it was just that you know early 2000s um we want to go get out there get it done you know extreme kind of action vibe i guess going on i mean i gotta say love the laura croft movie as much as it's like kind of viewed as like way too camp nowadays but um I, I know that Disney sometimes releases movies specifically over in Los Angeles, Hollywood, as um, at the El Capitan Theater, which is like this, you know, historic theater over here. So I wonder if that was one of the two theaters you had mentioned. Uh, but it, it's just weird that like they would do that when Disney's usually really good about like pushing like an advertising movies that they have a lot of faith in. And I remember the advertising for this one being like, yeah, this is going to be like our next step. Like we're evolving like it was almost as if Disney was like just trying to do like what Marvel did for like phase two. We're like, Oh, you think, you know, the formula let's change that baby up for you. So it's, it's kind of weird that they almost like gingerly tested the waters rather than just dove for it. And that's the thing. When you, when you take a look at that weekend, I'm just taking a look at the top five films here. You had Lara Croft and then you had Atlantis. Then you had Shrek in its fifth week at number three. Sword oh, Shrek was huge. Oh, absolutely. I saw Shrek like 10 times in theaters right swordfish at number four in only its second week and in its fourth week another disney movie pearl harbor was was in number five still pulling in almost 10 million dollars so it's a big weekend at the box office and of course it's in the you know middle of summer but you have a big animated film already out 
you have another action movie already, like an action adventure movie already out. Does it feel like a weird time for Atlantis to launch? It does. And considering the fact that usually in the 90s, Disney was trying to put out one, maybe two animated movies a year. If I remember correctly, this is one of those years where they only did one big animated movie and it was Atlantis. So this was their horse for the race for that entire year. If you see that Shrek has come out and is doing the numbers that it's doing, I would think that you just delay. I don't know how much that costs to do that, but I would think like Shrek's going to crush in the box office. We should hold off a little bit, let that die down, let the momentum that has going like kind of drop because Shrek is literally taking all like the stories that you know, whether it's fairy tale or anything and like satirizing it. And Disney's main bread and butter is fairy tale. So Shrek is out there literally saying, isn't Disney stupid? Disney's so dumb. And then Disney releases this movie like, okay, but what about this, guys? Yeah, you like <laughs> this maybe? No? Okay, we'll just put you back. Shh. Go back down. You know, right. kind of. <laughs> like, honestly, no, we're not everything you say we are, but here we are. I mean, literally, the tagline for this movie was, no songs, more explosions. Right? Which... At least you knew what you were getting when you came into it. Now, the critics, I'm not quite sure they were ready for this one because over at Metacritic, this film has a meta score of 52. And over at Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is 54 and the tomatometer is 49%. So by it's not that bad standards, it's actually a pretty good film. But on a Rotten Tomatoes list of 72 animated Disney movies ranked by Tomatometer, Atlantis sits at number 64. That just hurts me so much. Like, I understand that, like, there's some up there that are the greats, like Beauty and the Beast and stuff. But, like, 64, guys, come on. For what it's worth, uh, this fared better than both Planes movies. So, you know, not, not everything Pixar is gold, apparently. But also for perspective... There is actually a sequel to this. One of those, because Disney would do that, right? Here's a big movie in the theater, and then every sequel goes, like, direct to DVD. Uh, Is it a sequel? Have you seen it? I I can tell you about the sequel. (laughs) Atlantis Milo's Return has no tomatometer and an audience score of 25%. So I'm assuming it's nothing like the original. Well, what it was is... Disney was trying to find not only like, of course, like its new voice and its new like kind of formula with action films, because also I think that the Disney execs were like not realizing how big nostalgia was going to be with the millennial generation, you know, because before this, it's like people would watch Pinocchio. And say, oh, that's cute. And then like maybe Disney releases in theaters and goes, oh, OK, maybe I'll see Pinocchio again. I remember watching that as a kid. But I don't think they realized that like VHS is especially made kids like locked into Disney and like fans for life. Like I still like to go to Disneyland every now and then and I'm in my late 30s, you know. Um, but I think that with uh, with this, they were like concerned about we need to evolve ourselves to keep up the interest of all the patrons we had before. The kids who grew up watching Aladdin and and Mulan and all that, we want to keep them engaged. So we need to start getting more mature and darker. Kind of like how the Harry Potter books, they start super like lighthearted and like, it's a fun adventure. Oh no, there's a troll in the bathroom. To like, I've murdered your entire family, Ron Weasley, in like the last book or whatever. Um, So I think that they're trying to like merge that up too. But 
what they also wanted to do is they wanted to keep it going. So they actually had planned to do an Atlantis television show, just like how they've spun off some of their movies into TV shows or vice versa. Uh, like they technically spun off Jungle Book into Tailspin, where they have a lot of the same character models. They wanted Atlantis to be a globe-trotting adventure where Kita, Milo, um, Mole, Sweets, Cookie, and like all the rest of the crew that's like the good ones. I don't remember if Helga's there or not, but they literally just essentially go cryptid hunting. They go to the Loch Ness to go investigate the Loch Ness monster. I think they go looking for Bigfoot at one point. And they had done three episodes and... Disney was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, okay, this is not working out. Like the numbers are not doing what we thought would would be in the box office. We're pulling the plug on this. But we have three episodes done. I don't know. Slap them together and make call it a movie. So that's what the second, that's what the sequel is. So it's not even really a movie. It's just a TV show pilot in three parts. I mean, I could see, I could see how the series could work as a TV show. And maybe it's one of those things that, you know, they go back and revisit, you know, maybe in another maybe 2031 you know like 30 years afterwards if the nostalgia is high for it like i don't i don't think it's a bad property it just it it didn't do probably as well as they had hoped and that's the thing like if you look at the numbers for the box office for this actually did it did pretty well considering like how other movies might have done but Disney has a higher standard. They have the Disney standard. And if it doesn't do the Disney standard, then it's to them like the redheaded stepchild that they don't care about anymore. Yeah. And when you're trying to market a film to kids, uh, especially in 2001, and your inspiration is Jules Verne, maybe not the source material you should be leaning on for your idea. Well, but also, speaking of marketing, did you see how many toys were in this movie? I remember the marketing for it, and every single vehicle was a toy. You had the giant sub was like your $120 toy, plus all the little mini subs that come off it. Those were each their own little toy. You had the giant uh, lobster leviathan. You had the smaller fish things and all the action figures could ride. You had the giant drill that literally does one thing and then is gone for the rest of the film. You had the hot air balloon thing. Like everything was a toy. So this is also in the marketing uh, era where like, just like shove it down the throats and like throw so much at the wall and we'll see what sticks and what people keep wanting to buy. And you know what the funny thing is when you realize that, you know, the toy line for this, you know, if, if kids like their bath toys, this is almost like the perfect property to make bath toys for kids for. And, and unfortunately for some reason or another, it just didn't stick. It didn't. I think it's because, like, first of all, one reason I think that this may not have stuck so much with audiences is because there's no definitive Atlantis story. Snow White has a definitive story. Girl bites apple, falls asleep, seven dwarves, kiss wakes her up, you know, yada, yada. Sleeping Beauty, definitive story. Atlantis, it's kind of a vague myth. Like there are different stories out there that call kind of allude to this. And this movie even starts with, I think it's a quote from like Plato about Atlantis, but like there's not like one definitive telling for it. It's kind of like a vague idea in like our pop cultural zeitgeist. So I think because it's a bit more amorphous, it's kind of harder for audiences to latch onto and know what they're buying with their tickets. So I think that also kind of hurts it with just like the, ambiguosity of like what is this even going to be about 
Mm-hmm. But let's get to the breakdown here. We're going to go through this character by character. We're going to start, of course, with Milo, as voiced by Michael J. Fox. And we've already discussed, you know, some of the potential under consideration actors. And yes, Michael J. Fox, I think, is a perfect fit for this. But how was he for you? I think he was great. Um, you know, I I'm not the biggest Michael J. Fox fan in the world. Like, of course, I've seen Back to the Future. I've even seen um Oh, what's that film? I think you and Carrie did like Midnight Madness or something like oh, that. That, that, was, doing, like, yeah, that was with Brian Colburn. Yes. Yeah. With a scavenger hunt. Right. Like that's his like super young Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. But like I never watched that show that he was on like Growing Pains or whatever. Or Family Ties. Um, or Family Ties. Excuse me. Uh, but like I, I just I think he fits so perfectly. Like I said, I can maybe see someone else like a Jason Schwartzman in this role. But I just it's hard for me to picture it. I feel like Michael J. Fox. He does that perfect I'm nervous or I don't feel as empowered as I want to be in this situation. But when the chips are down, I will step up and help get things done because I know that's what I need to do. Or that he's also the kind of guy where he's like, I may not be, you know, athletic, but I know how to do this one thing really well. And I'm going to show you. Mm -hmm. So I, I do appreciate that energy that he brings to this character. I think that when you have a guy who is, essentially the top of his field for linguistics and cartography, Um, you know, but like he's not going to outrun anybody. He's not going to, he can't even drive a truck properly. He needs to have like the intelligence to know when to pick his moment and then shine. I I think you're spot on there in the fact that Michael J. Fox is confident when Milo needs to be confident in times when he's like fixing the boiler for the for the the boring machine and because that's his specialty but yes when hey, that machine to, was pretty exciting to me I don't know why you're calling it boring <laughs> I, I'm just following you know Elon <laughs> Musk rules here at this point here it's the boring company um, but you know when it, you're right when it comes times to driving the truck or about to go into the water and you know you know see her, seeing the princess and it's like oh yeah pretty I'm pretty good pretty girl um, yeah like <laughs> like it's and it just feels natural and i'll admit at first you know the first couple scenes when when milo is you know doing his presentation to basically the 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 skeletons in the room it's like okay maybe not but it grew on me it really grew on me it is interesting to note though that apparently at the time of this film he was offered two roles for voice work this and a role in Titan AE. And apparently he let his kid decide which one he was going to do. And wow. this is the one that his Can kid decided. Can you imagine if he and Matt Damon switched and Matt Damon did this and Michael J. Fox did Titan AE? I cannot picture Matt Damon as Milo. I just cannot. Uh, and I can't picture uh, Michael J. Fox as, I think his name was Kale or Cade from Titan AE. Yeah, no, I literally Michael J. Fox's kid made the right choice on this one here. Let's move on to Rourke. Commander Rourke is played by James Garner. And again, we've gone through the list and James Garner is a perfect choice for this here. The one thing about Rourke that I think James Garner, above everyone else who was under consideration for this role, um, he's charming when he needs to be. And at no Mm -hmm. point does he get like really screamy or gruff or, you know, for lack of a better term, Tommy Lee Jones-esque in in that role. He still has that charisma even when he's gone full bad guy. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, I I remember uh, hearing on the DVD extras, because I like to listen to the commentaries and stuff uh, whenever I watch movies, especially ones that I really love and get all the backstory. Um, the directors were talking about 
they wanted this villain to not be just like the binary, like, oh, I'm evil because I'm evil. And of course I'm going to do, make the bad choice here. It's they want a more like 3D character. And so Rourke is bad only just because he's greedy. Like that's the only reason he's really quote unquote the bad guy of this film is because he's greedy and he's willing to say like, well, what's the life of one girl to bring back this energy source to like change the world and make me mega rich, you know? So I think, yeah, he's a very charming guy. He is actually a good leader. You know, he recognizes that some people have certain skills and other people's don't. So he doesn't yell at Milo when he like asks him, like, do you know how to drive a truck? He gives him a chance to, but then when that doesn't work out, okay, well, I'll solve the problem and I'll have you just towed along. But I agree. I think that out of all the Disney villains, he is probably the one that you most want to spend time with just because he's probably the safest bet. Oh, and that's the thing. Like when you realize that the best villains are the ones that think they're in the right. And Rourke Mm -hmm. definitely thinks he's in the right. And that also explains why everyone went along with him until they saw the consequences to the Atlanteans of, of their actions you know, and you realize that, oh, wait, maybe we're the baddies. Maybe we should, you know, not do this. But Rourke and the way he's written and the dialogue and James Garner's, you know, inflection and the way he voiced it, it made sense why everyone followed him into the depths of the unknown. And if you remember at the very beginning of the film, Milo's on board with it because Milo doesn't know that the energy source that is in myth is a person necessarily. He thinks it's a MacGuffin just some device or thing that they can just pick up and put on a truck and take back up. So Milo is the one who wants to chart this expedition to find that. Yeah, finding Atlantis and like deciphering the language would be all cool. But his main goal himself, even with his presentation to the quote unquote museum curators, which is actually just like stuffed animals or whatever in his office that he's practicing with, his main like thesis for that like, you know, retro PowerPoint presentation that he's doing is to say we can bring back this amazing energy source and change the world and we'll all get mega rich. Yeah. So and tell him it's just that the only reason that Rourke is the bad guy is because he doesn't go like, Oh, but we can't do that now. Cause it's the person. Damn. You know, he's like, well, I have a mission. I'm a soldier. I'm going to carry out my mission. And that's the thing. Like, if it was Tommy Lee Jones, and he seems to be like the one that that, that really kind of comes to mind, you know, in that list of potentials, is I I just can't picture Tommy Lee Jones giving that 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 charisma that Garner was able to do. Maybe it's just me, and I loved James Garner in the movie Maverick. I thought it was a great film. I thought he was perfect yes. in it, um, and that kind of charm comes through in this as well. I agree. I think Tommy Lee Jones would have been too soldier type. I think that because James Gardner, and he even references it in this movie, says, oh, I'm a cowboy uh, fan myself. Cowboys are more morally flexible, make the decision in the moment. And in that decision, yeah, he can be charming, but he can also be like, but I'm also going to rob this bank. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Let's move on to Helga as voiced by Claudia Christian. This is where... Helga to me, and there, there were two thoughts that came to mind as, as I'm watching this. The first one, um, it was very reminiscent of Alison Duty, who played Elsa Schneider in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, very, very, and a very Elsa kind of role here. But also, Claudia Christian brought a very Kathleen Turner esque vibe to Helga, and I think it worked really well. Yeah, I mean, the one scene where they first introduced Helga and Milo's coming home after having a really crappy day and she's, you know, in that slinky black dress trying to play like a noir femme fatale, that's very much a Jessica Rabbit trope, you know. Um, I I remember specifically at this time, another movie that came out was, um, I think it's DreamWorks, uh, The Road to El Dorado. And she and Chell were often kind of lumped in the same group as like, oh, yeah, they're kind of like independent women. You know, they're interesting characters, things like that. But um, for me, as much as I like this movie, keep watching it. I keep going, oh, yeah, that's right. Helga's here, too. Like, she just kind of keeps disappearing in the back for me. Like, the only two scenes of hers that stand out of my mind at all. Well, three, I should say, is her introduction scene, because I'm a sucker for any kind of noir like vibe. Um, the scene where she's yelling at Cookie about, no, we're bringing lettuce along because the men need vegetables, but that's really Cookie's introduction scene. And then, of course, at the end, where she does the heel turn against James Gardner's character, Rourke, and kind of shoots him down. Other than that, she disappears and is like, might as well not even be there in the movie because what significance does she really bring to the plot? I, I will say, in, in looking at the animation style, because, of course, like that was the, the thing that really stood out to me. 2001, the animation... Um, 
again, harken back to like an earlier era, like, you know, maybe an 80s, wonderful world of Disney kind of feel to it. But when it came to Helga, and I'm watching the animation, um, it almost felt like she was maybe drawn in the style of the Aeon Flux MTV animated series. I can see that, yeah. Um, I know in this era of Disney, they were specifically going for more stylized animation. Like if you look at Hercules, they're going based upon the kind of, um, you know, like Grecian urn style. If you look at Mulan, it's for like the old uh, silkscreen paintings. They're kind of referencing it. For Atlantis, I, I, I don't remember the exact source they were referencing before, but I think they said they were going for more of a kind of like stone cut blocky look. That's why everyone's fingers in there are like just kind of like squared off with like just rectangle or square like fingernails. Uh, but yeah, she she does have a bit more of a distinct visual style that I can't quite put my finger on, but that Aeon Flux is a pretty good um, pretty good starting point for that investigation, I think. Next, we move on to Don Novello, who played Vinny, the explosions expert. Tell me, tell me you were getting Jean Renault from 1998's Godzilla vibes. <laughs> That's great. Well, I actually know the stand-up work of him. Uh, I always forget his name, but um, yeah, the guy who played Vinny. So whenever I hear his voice, I just hear like all the bits of his that I know. Um also, for those of you who may recognize the voice but not know the face, he was in Casper for a brief cameo where they try to exercise the ghosts out of uh, Whitstaff Manor. And he just comes out with like his head on backwards. But uh, Vinny, my God, so funny. I, I love the one thing I love about this movie, and I'll, I'll just get to this now, is like, yeah, you said at the beginning, like, oh, it's a bunch of like stereotypes and cliches, but like stereotypes and cliches that like immediately tell you who the character is, and you're like, cool, got it, let's move on to the next character. This movie moves at a breakneck pace. Milo goes from, I well, actually, the movie starts with, oh, Atlantis is destroyed. 15 minutes later, Milo's on the sub to go find it. That's how fast this movie moves. Like, there's a lot in here. It's only 100 minutes long. But um, uh, Vinny is one of my favorite characters just because he, I think, every joke that he does, every little line just steals the same. Um, I don't know necessarily. I'm still deciding personally if he's going to be my MVP yet or not, but he's definitely up in the running. I I will say, like, as I was watching this and looking at the size of the team, well, at least who survived the first attack, um, there were some characters that I could have done without, but Vinny is not one of them. Vinny, I think, definitely had his role, had his job, and brought you know, a, a fun level of humor to that, to that role. Um, there are characters we could have just easily done without of, and that in that sense would have narrowed the storyline a little bit, but Vinny, no, you're right. Vinny, Vinny was comedy gold in this one here. Phil Morris, who was Dr. Sweet. And I have to say, if at any point Disney does a live action remake of Atlantis, the lost empire, this role is being played by Terry Crews. Yes, a thousand percent. Yes. I mean, I feel like based upon what you just said that I, I feel like as much as I do like sweet, I think you could let him go from the cast. If we're starting to do like our little like kind of roster team cuts, he's a fun character, but what does he really add to the plot? Uh, he's just kind of fun to be there, but great, great character. Love this guy's voice. Um, you know, not really too many notes other than just he's enjoyable. I think the only scenes that really makes him stand out is his introduction scene where he immediately does the um, 
medical exam of Milo Thatch uh, for seemingly no reason other than he just wants practice. And then when they get to Atlantis and he's telling everyone, hey, make sure you eat the heads too. That's where all the protein's at. And he's just like chowing down on some weird squid bug thing. Yeah, no, it's... It wasn't a bad character, but it definitely wasn't necessary. Although one character I would definitely keep was Audrey, the tech expert, as, as voiced by Jacqueline Obrador. Uh, really loved her in this. Not just the fact that you know her role made sense, but she was also the conscience of the group as well in that pivotal turn moment. Oh, and I love her backstory. How she has, and her dad was like a heavyweight boxer, her sister is also a boxer and she couldn't make it as a boxer. So she became a mechanic. I think that's fantastic. I think for the longest time, because you mentioned the whole idea of a live action film, people have been kind of fan casting this for like the past 20 years of like, if they did a live action film, who would this be? For the longest time, this role was filled by, um, oh, her fate, her name just fell out of my head. The girl from uh, Fast and Furious. Oh, Michelle Rodriguez. Michelle Rodriguez. Yeah, for the longest time, Michelle Rodriguez was filling this slot, but now I feel like you'd have to like move on to somebody else, you know? Um, but, and I don't know who that would be right now. The only thing I could think of off the top of my head is the girl who's playing Wednesday Adams right now. Wow, I'm super bad with names today. Jenna Ortega. Thank you. Maybe her, but like, I don't know. Um, I, I feel like there could be somebody better for this, but Audrey definitely, like you said, she's the kind of the heart and soul of the group. I feel that as much as you might say like, well, can she really analyze like ancient, ancient technology with her like motor mechanic skills? Like, yeah, that's the point. She knows more about engines than anyone will ever learn. So you need her down there to like figure stuff out like that. So I I think she was fun. Also, I do enjoy the fact that they did the whole kind of, um, she's very young, but on this adventure, because that's kind of like the team buy into this film. It's not like a bunch of adults doing stuff like that's the slot I could fill if I want to put my fantasy into this. Either I'm filling the Milo role where like I'm just super smart or I'm filling the Audrey role where like, oh, I, I could be useful to the team in this way. So I think that she fills multiple purposes, not only for the story, but also for the audience and their enjoyment as well. We both agree, I think, that Dr. Sweet would be played by Terry Crews. Mm-hmm. I can see Audrey being played by Melissa Fumero, uh, who, of course, plays Amy Santiago from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And if you're going down this road, now picture Milo as played by Andy Samberg. Stop uh, it. I'm, I'm on board. Stop. Just uh, right there. I love it. And Audrey um, Brower as Rourke. You've got Stephanie Beatrice yeah. as Helga. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, okay. So now we need the Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Oh, oh reunion. Boyle is Finney. Yes. No, yes. no, 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 no. Boyle, no. Boyle would be Morlier. We know that. We know that. Oh, probably. More than likely. Um, and I forget, I forget her name, but um, the, the secretary who was always on her phone. Chelsea Peretti, you know, like, who played Gina Linetti. Thousand percent she's Mrs. Packard. Yes. Oh, can we talk about Mrs. Packard? Because Go ahead. I freaking love Florence Stanley as Mrs. Packard. This is like the best comedic like just just for a little bit you know comedic one-liners in there this is a role that i think you know and there's gonna be a couple more uh roles here where i'm like don't don't need him don't need him mrs packard needs to stay for the perfect one-liners yeah she adds just that level of like kind of not world building but just like fleshing it out a little bit like how she's on the pa system she's talking to her friend gloria via the radio things like that you know making the announcements I, I just love her. Yeah, she has nothing to contribute to the adventure whatsoever, but God, do we need her. She's like the mascot of the group. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
I, I'm probably going to catch flack on this one here. And, and I, I know, yeah, Jim Varney is a, is a gem and has what I'm about to say has nothing to do with Jim Varney whatsoever. Cookie is unnecessary. He's absolutely unnecessary in this. That's tough. That's tough. On the one hand, I do. I remember even the first time watching this thinking that's smart to bring that person along because this person knows how to pack for a long journey because he's like a, 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 a wagon trailsman, you know, where like he knows like I'm going to load up with like beans, bacon and lard because those things keep they'll keep you alive and they'll keep in my thing. I don't have to worry about them spoiling. But at the same time, yeah, he doesn't really contribute much past there. And it's not like they ever talk about getting low on food or ammo or anything. It would have been nice if there was a moment where he was like, I want to go walk in this direction and find some food for us because like, that's what I have to do. Or if they are like getting hungry and he has to step up and say like, no, that's all you get. And that's, and then he like maybe gets a shotgun out and it's like, everyone who wants more can talk to my, talk to this about boomstick first, you know, kind of thing you know, kind of put his foot down because he's used to guys like rushing the dinner line, but that never happened. It's cookie. is just another one of those like exaggerated goofy characters just to like kind of catch the like ADD of the of attention of all the kids going like, Oh, he's funny. He's the funny old man who makes the funny things. Or yeah. The funny, uh, the funny words and speechifians. Yeah. He's like that one character you occasionally bump into like maybe once or twice a series and that's about it. And it's just, it's, it's, it's unnecessary. And again, you know who I think should have been on this adventure instead of him is Preston Whitmore played by John Mahoney. The guy who is like the old man funding the whole thing, doing the expedition, the yoga. Mm-hmm. I think it makes sense for him to have gone on the trip because he says at the beginning, Oh, I used to do a lot of venturing with Milo's uncle or grandfather, or whatever it was like, don't you think he would want to see this thing through himself? Oh, absolutely. And not just trust that, like, this submarine he's sending to the bottom of the ocean is maybe going to come back with what he wants and not get horribly destroyed like it does. And it doesn't help that Whitmore and Cookie look like they went to the same beard barber. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, if Cookie was, if, if they had established that Cookie was actually related to Whitmore and he was there as Whitmore's avatar or at least as his representation, okay, maybe. But yes, you're right. Replace Cookie with Whitmore. Narrow the story. Makes sense. Cookie, although to me, is only the second most annoying character in this. Oh, okay. I think I know where this is going. Go ahead. Corey Burton voicing Lier. Yep. Yeah. It's it's a one-note joke. And you have Audrey, who in herself is a tech expert. Why is she not the one driving the boring machine? Thank you. Why is she not driving the boring machine? Why, when they were about to use that boring machine, did Moliere not get out of the driver's seat, go, like, lick the wall or, like, do a visual inspection himself with all his magnifying doodads on his helmet to be like, oh, it's uh, sandstone and lime or, okay, I know how to do this, you know, kind of thing. No, he just immediately, like, hell yeah, full steam ahead and, like, breaks the drill. He's he's the loose cannon. He is literally Dolph Lundgren from The Expendables 2 at this point. And you'd think the loose cannon would have been Vinny with the explosions, but no. But no, no, he knows what he's doing and he's prepared. Moliere is just that crazy. Moliere is, yeah, the other clown in this troupe 
just to get laughs, where really all he does is he yells at Michael J. Fox for disturbing piles of dirt that he stuck little toothpick flags in. He makes a um, a lewd remark or statement to Princess Akira mm-hmm. that gets him slapped, and that's about it. Although, that being said, Cookie and Moliere are Hitchcock and Scully. Thousand percent, yes. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Do we want Boyle as Moliere, or do we want him as there? As the, um, I I can see Boyle as Molly or not uh, as Vinny because you have someone who's maybe a little too eager to blow things up, maybe? and who you don't fully trust with the explosives. Yes, you're right. Okay, exactly. You're right. Okay, you're right. Hitchcock and Scully need to be Vinny and or not um, Cookie and Moliere. Okay, let's get back to Preston Wintmore. John Mahoney, yeah. love John Mahoney again. Love. The perfect voice for Whitmore. No, no notes. I mean, at this point, I was like super into Frazier as well. So like seeing like him do more work was fantastic for me. I have no notes for him other than I wish there was more of the character. I think he should have come on the trip. I think it would have been interesting to see his fun yoga somehow played out. And like, what would the Atlanteans have thought about? Like, we could do that. People can do that. Like, you know, all people on the surface world as flexible as you. It would have been fantastic to see that. Plus it would have been nice emotional moment when they are standing on that cliff and the clouds part and you can see Atlantis if his character just like cries to be like we did and he could say like we did it James or whatever Milo's grandfather's name was you know we did it okay so now I'm putting this out into the world here in our live action Brooklyn Nine-Nine reunion version of Atlantis the Lost Empire Priston Wetmore is played by Jason Manzoukas I guess. Okay. I, yeah, I'm down for, I forgot he was even in there. He's, um, that one cop who goes like, Adrian Pimento. Yep. Okay. I'm down for this. Um, also, since we're doing so much Brooklyn nine, nine talk, remind me to send this to my friend, David later. He's the biggest Brooklyn nine, nine fan. I know. Oh, I mean, honestly, I, 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 I know there's a writer's strike and I know there, there's an actor's strike, but please somehow, some way someone put this into reality. Like, well, if Hollywood wins, we could just do it with AI and then we'll win there. <laughs> oh dear God. I can just imagine how that would look if someone programmed all of this into AI. That people have got way too many fingers, like double sets of teeth, but Hey, at least, you know, that looks like Terry Crews. Okay, let's now get to the the two main Atlanteans here. Leonard Nimoy as the Atlantean king. The tenor of Nimoy's voice in this is so perfect. I'm going to catch some flack for this. I don't care for him at all. Really? I I just... Okay, I like Star Trek. I never really got into the original series. I could only go next generation and beyond. Like... I, I can't get into the leadership series and let an emo something about him. Just, I just, it doesn't click for me. I understand that he does have a good tenor. Like you said here, I feel like you could have got something better. Someone who's maybe like a bit more, cause he, I know that he is meant to be like this thousands of year old man. And like, maybe he's a bit more frail because like they do have unnaturally long lives, but they're not immortal, but just, I don't know. Something about it just didn't doesn't quite ring as like the perfect choice for me. See, I think for me, it's you know obviously it's two thousand one, so you're not getting the voice of Galvatron, you know Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, uh, but you are getting the the weariness of Sentinel Prime, who he voiced in Transformers: Dark of the Moon. Uh, but you're also when you th- when you think about it, the Atlantean King, 
is at this point, you know, he's near the end of his, his rope, right? Like, obviously, like, he's been king of Atlantis for a while. Obviously, the, you know, as, as mentioned by Princess Keita, the, the Atlanteans are, you know, they're, it's not that they're not happy. It's just they don't know anything else. He's weary. He's been around way too long. And I think you need someone who, who sounds weary. And in this case, I think Nimoy actually brought a very good, he hit the tone right. I mean, yes, could I see someone like a Tommy Lee Jones pulling this off? Yeah, sure, maybe, or Josh Brolin for sure. Um, Tim Curry, I think you're right. No, definitely not. Tim Curry could be Moliere, and that's fine. But yeah. but I don't think Tim Curry was the right tonality for this because it, w- it would have been too too upbeat. I think you needed someone to bring it down a bit, and, and Nemo, I think, hit that tone. Although now I've gotten Transformers references in here, and I, I feel good. Um, finally... <laughs> Cree <laughs> Summer as Princess Kida. Uh, Cree Summer, first of all, is a great voice actress, and I think she was perfect for this. Oh, Cree Summer is my like one and only true love for voice actors. Are you kidding me? She and I go back. She was Penny from Inspector Gadget. You know, she was the uh, in so many other. She was in the Care Bears movie. That was like the first movie I ever saw, practically. So she she goes that far back for me. Um, I, I cannot imagine a single person more deserving of this role than Chris Summer, considering all the work that she's put in with voice acting over the decades before this movie was given to her. And I love the fact that for such an important role, they didn't do just some name in Hollywood who can kind of do the voice. They got a professional voice actor who knows what she is doing who actually can get out those different subtle emotions and knows how to play the role. You know, uh, like just recently I went and watched this, the newest uh, Super Mario movie uh, with Lauren and we thought it was fine and everything, but like, especially for Mario, Luigi and Peach, we're like, I don't know. I feel like they were fine, but like, I, I feel like it could have get better. And especially the video game industry and the animation industry, there's so many voice actors out there who are doing great work, who do role after role after role. And they're like woven through the tapestry of like your childhood growing up that you don't even recognize them half the time. They're the ones who I really think should be doing this. I mean, going back in the day, like Disney himself would sometimes be at some of the uh, voice castings for roles. Like I remember this is one anecdote for, I believe it's Alice in Wonderland, where he wanted to be the one to help decide who would be the voice of the titular character of Alice. So he sat in the booth with the with the different actresses who were doing it, but he like had his back turned to wore a blindfold or something because he didn't want to see who it was. He just wanted to know what is that voice, almost like kind of a pseudo mass singer, if you guys know that show. Um, so it's, and I love that idea of like, I don't care who you are, I care how you sound. And Cree Summer she deserved this shot. She herself has gone on record saying this is the favorite role she's ever done. And she's literally done over 350 different roles. This is her number one favorite. This is her number one IMDb. And she deserves every bit of credit for it. I want to give credit where credit is due on this one here. Uh, I want to share with the Space Castle podcast because they recently put out a, a tweet that asked the question of who would be on your voice acting Mount Rushmore. So to you... Is Cree Summer on the Mount Rushmore of voice actors? 
not only is it Chris Summer on there, she's on there like three different times, just in whatever pose that she wants. Like that's how important she is for me. But yeah, she's definitely up there. I, I guess the fourth one goes to Tara Strong because Tara Strong needs to be up there as well. Well, it's Chris Summer. It's Tara Strong. It's um, oh god, uh, I can see his face. I can't picture his name. Uh, the guy who was in uh, Bioshock Infinite. It's Troy Baker. Mm, yes, 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 yes. And oh. I also always forget his name, but the guy who did Spike Spiegel in Cowboy Bebop. Oh, wasn't that uh, Steve Blum? Steve Blum. Yes. Those are my four. I, I could also make an argument, too, for Clancy Brown being up there because he's just so good. So, mm-hmm. so good. Uh, oh, okay. Wait a second. Wait a second. Sorry. Taking Steve Blum off. Slotted in Tim Curry. Okay. I can see. He I did can- a lot of stuff. I, I, I can, it, it's a fascinating, fascinating argument. And, you know, shout out to the Space Castle podcast for putting that question out there. Very timely for us to bring that one up there. Um, one of the things, though, that really kind of um, stood out to me is Disney, especially like 90s Disney, really hit it big with soundtrack songs from their movies. Um, this only has the one song yeah uh where the dream takes you written by diane warren and sung by maya who's probably best known as the fourth girl who did lady marmalade from uh from uh, moulin rouge do you think the lack of soundtrack songs hurts this film not necessarily from the film's perspective because i don't think it needed it to for the film but i'm talking about for the marketing and for the the the, the broader outside of the theater appeal for this film? That's a great question. I think if we're framing it in that way, where it's not, does it hurt the movie itself? Does it hurt the marketing? Yes. I think it did. I think people went to a Disney film and like, this is not as happy as I want it to be. This is not as sing song as I want it to be. What happened? You know, it's, it's, you build 25 years of expectation and then you, I mean, they did technically say what they were going to do. The poster said fewer songs, more explosions. So, like, they didn't, like, pull the rug out from under us and, like, surprises with that. But, like, still, how many people actually read and memorize the taglines of posters, you know? So I feel like that was kind of a disappointment for some people, especially for people uh, who might maybe music is their go-to favorite part of Disney films. You know, I know some people... Uh, when I was in high school, who were in the theater group, and they would always look forward to like the latest Disney song, the latest animated song to come out, or so that way they could like add to their repertoire, you know, practice that, get the kind of feelings for that, because it'd be something fresh, something new they can play with. And here's a year where this is the only Disney film to come out that year, and they got Bupkis. So I can see that maybe doing an impact, but in all honesty, I think that songs would have hurt the film itself more than it did in terms of marketing. I think that if you put songs in this, like this places you can see a song would exist. Like when they are trapped before they get to Atlantis, where they're traveling with their convoy through the, um, the under like, you know, world, so to speak. And they're like, Milo's like, Oh, it's this way up oh, giant snake. No, it's that way. I-, I can see that being a song there, but I just feel like it would kind of kill the tone of like the suspense, the adventure of where they're going. Yeah, I mean, even when you go back to Hook, 
and there was the one scene where the where the the daughter was all of a sudden just broke out into song and it's like the only time that that actually happens that felt out of place and i think it would have had the almost the same feel if someone all of a sudden broke out into song in the middle of this movie that has zero reason to for that to happen um yeah sure okay you get your credit song and that's okay but i think it's one of those things where you, you think about disney animated movies around that time and you could almost sit there and name the movie and immediately name a song from it you know tarzan uh, you know you'll you'll be in my heart uh lion king circle of life like it's it's almost synonymous at that point uh very it's the disney formula at that point in time this movie and it's it's a good movie it's a good adventure film but it's almost like they took the disney formula and flipped upside down said yeah we're not going to do that with this yeah and also the thing about this movie is it's 100 minutes long including credits and you know disney was back in those days you also have to remember like movies were not these two and a half hour epics all the time so like there was kind of an expectation of like a more of a realistic ceiling for how long a movie could go. And as I kind of mentioned before, this movie moves at a breakneck pace. Like the second you see something on screen, don't get too attached to it because in two scenes, it's going to be gone. And in five minutes, like forget that submarine, it's gone already. Forget that drill, it's gone already. You know, so I feel like also the pace that this movie was at just would not naturally preclude to Rasan. If you look at something like Mulan, for example, that's only coming out about three years before this, you know, that first song that she uh, really has, the, um, well, I guess it's the matchmaker song, but the first one that she has, that known one, that uh, reflections, that's like, we've already spent time with her at home. We got to see what her life is like kind of in the status quo. And now she's doing the lamenting, almost the I want song of like, you know, I'm really depressed and I'm not happy with how things are here. No one has any time to feel any of that nonsense in this movie for Atlantis. It's like, we have to get going, get in the truck and start driving. So it's it's almost like it's an unnecessary like road trip like stop that they would have to make for the song. And everyone would have been like, okay, but now we have to get our momentum back up. And that's going to be very difficult from completely stopping so that someone can have a song and dance about being on the open road underground. Yeah, no. Just get in the truck and drive. Just don't let Milo do the driving. Yeah. Okay. We have been joking around about, you know, the Brooklyn Nine-Nine eventual fun cast of this one here. But, you know, being serious for a second, something we very rarely do on the show, but being serious, um, of course, Disney has, you know, gone down that road of taking some of their animated films and turning it into a live action remake. Obviously, of course, with with Mulan, they've done that and they've done that with some others there, especially with them. Uh, oh, what was the Emma Stone one where they basically, you know, the continuing Relativeville. story. Exactly. Right. So taking a look at Atlantis and knowing that you have the technology to pull off of a film of this scale now, because you know, let's be honest, 2001, maybe the CGI isn't there to pull all of this off, but is this the kind of movie where Disney could potentially take it, make it live action, maybe not for a theatrical release, but for Disney plus. I think they could, and I'm torn if this should be a live action film of at least two hours, maybe a little bit more to give it a little bit more room for characters to breathe and to have more to do. I think that extra half hour 
would have done a lot of benefits to characters like we've said about like sweets and cookie and all of that. Or should this be a a very limited run series? Like some of the Avengers series they've done are only like six episodes long. Some of them are more like eight or nine episodes long. And I think maybe those are a little too long. I feel like if you took this and you busted it down to two episodes, not two episodes, to six episodes, I think that that would then give us a little bit more time to develop characters. You could get to chapters of like the first episode is just building the crew. Because the thing I don't like about this movie is when Milo is being told essentially, okay, you are now going on the trip. We already have everything ready for you. They already have the dossiers of all these crew members. And he just kind of gives us the bullet points, which we the audience only know, like need to know really. But I also feel kind of robbed of like not knowing, well, how did you find this person? What other adventures has, you know, Moliere been on that proved that he was useful for this adventure? What about Vinny? Has he done any time? I feel like, you know, I would like to get a little bit more backstory for things like that. So I feel that if you did this as a very limited miniseries on Disney Plus, it could do really well. And I think that's probably the biggest reason why I take a look at characters like Cookie and Moliere and say, yeah, we don't need them because they weren't they didn't have the space to have the backstory. I still enjoyed the film. I, I think it is, you know. You know, when you take a look at Disney animated films, I don't think it deserves to be as low as like Rotten Tomatoes ranked it as far as the the overall list goes. But obviously, it it, it missed beats of what the audience was expecting. But I think if you go if you go back and watch it and get rid of any preconceived notions of what a Disney animated movie should be, and you just enjoy it for the story that's there you're going to have a good time. But Greg, it has come time. So, who is your MVP of Atlantis, The Lost Empire? Uh, I'm really torn. I'm torn between two. I already said Vinny was up there because just his, his, his theme of being the demolitions expert fits so well to comedy you know, I love the scene where he blows up the entire column that Milo's ogling over how it took thousand years to carve and goes, oh, I made a bridge in like two seconds. Or the fact he's like, how much dynamite do you have on you? And he has like this insane amount and he thinks that's a low number. The nitroglycerin joke is great, but I I would hate myself if I did not give it to Cree Summer. She deserves it. I love every little bit about her. The second her character finally shows up, it's like now the movie is here, you know, now we're finally in Atlantis and she is one of those people where it, it, it's unfortunate because I forget the exact terms, but like, you know, there's the whole kind of Hollywood tropes about how to write women and like, you know, where like, oh, she's powerful for like her intro scene and then she immediately like loses it, you know, and that kind of happens with Kita where she gets, I think they call it like she gets fridged where like. She essentially like gets all powerful and then locked in a box. And then now she's just like, I had to be rescued when she was like the coolest hunter. She's like, you know, climbing over rocks and jumping off of stuff. And she was like this powerful person. And then like, eh. and also I think that she's, uh, how do I say this? I think she's a more toned down version of Ariel where she has been trapped in this bubble of her society and she feels bored with it. She wants something more but she doesn't know how to 
get that, how to access that. And rather than her going out to find her Prince Eric, Milo Thatch comes to her. And then she latches on and says, I want to learn everything. Let's explore and like kind of share information back and forth together. And I love that about her character. I love that curiosity. So I got to give it to uh, Princess Kiragakash, a.k.a. the only Disney princess to ever become a queen. Even though the coronation wasn't necessarily on screen, but it was implied. The second her father dies, it's a coronation. That's how that works in Atlantean Empire. Fair enough. I gotta go with James Garner as Rourke. And I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it's one of those things where Garner just brings the suave to Rourke. Like, you have to have someone who is not a dictator who is not a a hard hand in leading their troops into danger because otherwise why would they do it if there's no guarantee of a payout at the end given that they are technically speaking mercenaries Rourke is played so well and so understandable you see why people follow him you see why Milo initially agreed to you know with everything that was going on like Milo was on Rourke's side until Rourke decided to go full dark side if you will um it's James Garner is the kind of actor that could do that and this film is better because he was Commander Rourke Greg thank you so much for getting me to to watch this film for the first time and to bring it to our attention before we go let us know about movie date night and what the plans are for that um yeah so my wife Lauren and I had that podcast uh movie date night where we share movies back and forth with each other um we're still kind of getting used to parenthood so no immediate plans there we have a few that we've already kind of recorded but not released yet like we did one where we did a retrospective look at all the different batman movies um so that'll be fun when we finally release that including the latest one um but we're, we're still kind of getting used to that but we do want to come back it's just you know you know you guys know how it is being parents and all of that come on now uh but yeah um we i've been a part of a few other podcasts as well here and there like uh, we did flops f-l-a-w-p-s uh, with my friend David, who, like I said before, is the uh, biggest um, uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan I've ever known. Um, so go check that out where we talk about stupid funny laws. And, of course, Moral Combats, where me and my friends went and did uh, uh, tournament-style rankings of all sorts of different things, including Disney and Pixar villains. I, Rourke was not part of that list, but it was still a fun thing to go through. All right, Greg, thank you so much. Now, to our listeners, just so you guys know, there is subscriber content that for only $1 a month, you can actually, if you're on Spotify, all you have to do is add it to your account. Or if you're not on Spotify, you can go to our website at notthatbadcast.com for literally $1 a month. Like you, you can't even buy anything at the dollar store for a dollar right now. So for only a dollar a month, you get access to all of our Keep Watch Pass episodes. So if you don't have Spotify, you can go to our website at notthatbadcast.com. Check out the Keep Watch Pass page and you can see where all the episodes and where the subscribe button is for that. Now, as for this show, you guys know the drill. If there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or you think is so bad that there's no way in heck that we can find anything good to say about it, hit us up on X at Not That Badcast or on all other social media platforms at Not That Badcast or go to our website, notthatbadcast.com. Have I said Not That Badcast before? I think I have. And let us know and we will watch it 
we will dissect it and we will find the good things to say because we are looking for those A grades in B movies. Greg, thank you. Listeners, you guys are awesome. This is It's Not That Bad. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.